Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Celeste Castillo-Lee. She's a program manager of patient and family-centered care of adult services at University of Michigan Health System and University Hospital. What a mouthful. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Celeste Lee, we have a lot in common. We've uh, both undergone dialysis. I'm a little bit ahead of her because I have a transplant and she's on the waiting list. So welcome to the uh, Kidney Talk, Celeste. Oh, Lori, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, today we're going to be talking about patient and family-centered care. And this is a term that's going around in the community. You see it in all of the literature. And, you know, my hope today is to kind of bring that down to the granular level of letting patients and family members understand what that is. So give us a little overview. Sure. So, yeah, because it can be kind of squishy, right? So when you say patient-family-centered care... What you're really talking about is creating um, a, a perfect clinical environment for a patient to understand what's wrong with them, what their illness is, and then how to care for themselves, right? That's the main goal. The main goal is to say, how can we create um, either our dialysis facilities or our clinics or our inpatient hospital stays? How can we create these in such a way that um, the patient and the family have a voice and our true partners with the nurses and the physicians and making healthcare decisions for themselves and those that they love. And so when we look at, um, you know, this, this is going to make it even more heady, I think, but when you look at the way that hospitals and clinics have been set up historically, they've been basically provider centric, right? We set them up what works best for doctors and what works best for nurses. But not, you know, we just kind of plugged the patients and the families in the structure that we thought would work well. Like go to this, go to, the, you know, basically to give you an example, I mean, I had to get an MRI and I had to go to one part of the hospital to be admitted. Then I had to go to another part of the hospital to, um, you know, get registered. And then the, the X-ray or MRI machine was in another part of the hospital. Exactly. And so, you know, that wasn't really thinking about somebody who may not feel well and has to walk those hallways. Absolutely. That's exactly it, Lori. It's like when we look at, when we look at all of our facilities, facilities and the hospitals that you go in and the processes that we make people go through, it's, it's really not for the, it's, you know, what you just described is what we call system-centric. It's really the best for the hospital, right? We have our co-location of registration people here, and then we're going to send you over here, and then our MRIs are all the way over here because they're so big and heavy, right, without really trying to co-locate those things that make it easiest for our patients. So you hit it right on the head. And so when we, t- when we talk about patient-centered care, what we're really trying to say is with the goals of the hospital and that we want to improve the outcomes of our patients, we want them to be able to be engaged, we want them to be able to be educated and then be empowered, how do we um, actually involve the voices of patients and families to help us do that? Um, and so that's what we do here. And that's when you talk about patient engagement is one thing. But um, when you talk about patient-centered care, what you're really hoping to do is to build a substructure of patients, you know, like you and I, and those who are probably listening to this, um, this podcast, those of us who are interested in saying, hey, you know what, I've had this really hard-learned experience, and I would love to be a member of your quality improvement team that's trying to actually improve the way that people get admitted to the ED or the way that nurses round up on the floors or something like that. So we actually have advisors who we train 
who understand how to be um, participants in sitting in these meetings and being a part of advisory councils to actually help us do our jobs better. Well, I'm trying to think of a scenario where, you know, my care was different. And one example is, is that, you know, I needed infusions. And in the past, I've had to go to the hospital. And, you know, when I needed 10 days of antibiotic infusions, they sent a nurse to my house. Now, that was wonderful. Yeah. Because of the fact that I'm working, I'm trying to figure out, and, you know, a lot of times with infusions, I might need Benadryl, which then you know, requires me to have somebody drive me. And, you know, the fact that they just sent a nurse to my house to give me the infusion for 30 minutes and I just go watch TV or do whatever is a great example of making it easier on the patient. <laughs> Absolutely. Because what, what that's basically saying is, you know, with like our home care, right? A lot of patients, when they get out of the hospital, instead of going to like a skilled nursing facility or a right. rehab, they could go home. Right. And they would get, you know, one is they would prevent themselves from getting any of these other types of infections that you can get by going into these skilled nursing facilities. But you're also at home. You're more comfortable. It's easier. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's much better for the patient. So you're absolutely right. That's another great example of, of us looking at um, what is better for the patient. You know, the other things can be we have patients who um, sit on some advisory councils who are really interested in trying to improve the communication between residents and patients. Right? right, and and so they're very interested in that, and so what they're trying to do is help to create these simulations that that we have with patients and family members, where you have residents who who come in and they actually do real time communication drills and scenarios, and at that time the patients actually are teaching the residents. Right. Well, no, 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 you I, don't I want to say it a... that way, or you don't want to do it that way. You have to understand, I'm kind of the expert of me, and you're the expert of the medication. Let's come to, you know, let's partner with this. Well, I grew up in, you know, university hospital. I grew up, you know, at UCLA at the beginning stages of dialysis. So my doctor, my nephrologist, like, oh, here, come on, there's a new resident. You're going to train them. And, you know, because I had so much experience and I would, you know, I, I learned early on that I was very knowledgeable and able to help physicians communicate just by, you know, having the ability to teach them about what I knew. And it was a great opportunity for me because it built my confidence and it helped me understand how much I actually knew about my illness. So, you know, there's a, there's a payoff on the other end as it empowers the patient as well. Oh, absolutely. Because what it does is that by having patient advisors and patients being a part of that, right, like yourself, like being able to help residents understand and communicating to them what it feels like to have dialysis or what it feels like to have kidney failure, um, they're, they're listening because, you know, they're like, you have the experience. It's a really hard-earned experience, and you're really knowledgeable, and so you can help me, and that's exactly what patient-centered care is about. It's, about. it's about the stories and the learned experience of patients and actually taking those and using those experiences to actually help us do our work, help us train our students, help us work with nurses, right? Like, there's... Um, there's a new practice that they're trying to do um, that's called shift change at the bedside. Because remember, for those who've been in the hospital, when the ner when the shift changes happen, there's like nobody to be found. Make sure you're not don't need any pain medicine during exactly. the shift change. <laughs> exactly right. It's like it's like it's like a ghost town. Um, but what we're trying to do now is um, around the country, people are experimenting with this. Is basically doing the shift change at the bedside. So what would happen is that as your nurse goes off and the new nurse comes on, they actually do this with you and invite you to participate 
um, right in your room, right at your bed. So they, they introduce the new nurse coming on. They talk about what the plan of care is going to be, what they've been waiting for, how you've been doing, some of the questions you might have, and you're listening. Right. right, and you're a part of it. And then at the end of that, you know, trans, you know, where they transfer the information to each other, then they say, did we miss anything? Did we get it right? Um, do you have any questions? Um, so it's a way of really engaging the patient. And so some of your questions that you might have are being answered. Like, when, when am I going to get that MRI? Right. Or when do you think I might get to go home? Or am I going to be able to get off clear liquids later tonight? Well, you know, the interesting thing is, is it makes sense, but the one thing that, you know, everybody looks at is time. And you know, when you talk about these different policies, I'm all for them, but they, they, they take more time because when you engage a patient, it takes more time, but you have a better outcome and then they don't take as much engagement in the future. Right. So how do you overcome the obstacle of a, of let's say a hospital or any type of practice, you know, having the staff available to engage the patient bedside? Cause I, I imagine it takes longer to do a um, this by the bed as opposed to in a room and like, oh, let's just go through it because you don't have the patient asking questions, which takes, you know, that time. I know. So, I mean, it is because everybody's like trying to save money with healthcare, which, you know, I don't like that term because of the fact that I always know that means less nursing staff or less staff when they say st- saving money. Right. Yeah. No, quite honestly, it is, it, it, it can take a little bit more time. Um, but what you have to do is that's when you start really looking at the structure and the way that you set up your nursing shifts and the schedules. Um, you actually can do it so that it's much more efficient where you have the same patients with the same nurses every day and so that the patient gets the same nurse. Um, and so it makes it easier. It's not like you have these nurses who have all these different patients that they're not going to be able to at least do the shift change at the bedside because you kind of schedule it in a way that it works. Um, but also the time commitment isn't really anymore because what you do is you have to you have to um, kind of invite the patient to be a part of this, but you also teach them how to be a part of it, right. which is you know um, don't interrupt us until we're done because we want to be able to make sure we're communicating and sharing our information. But as soon as we're done, if you have questions, then you can ask. Almost what we're finding is most of the questions are already answered, and what we're also finding is the call but the call buttons are being pushed much less during the nursing shift. Well, that's amazing. I mean, it's great. I mean, if you can shift the paradigm and get people to understand that this works better for everybody, uh, it's going to be huge for healthcare. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because that's what it, you know, that's what it really is about, Lori, is that we're trying to say, you know, at first, um, because that's always one of the barriers or or a perceived barrier is time. You know, it's even like, um, you know, when we go in the clinic and we're sitting and waiting for a doctor to come in um, and they come in and they've got like eight minutes or 10 minutes. Um, that eight or 10 minutes can either feel like 20 minutes or it can feel like three minutes. Right. And right. And that's how the doctors talk with us and engage us. And that's what we really want. And it's not so much the exact time. It's, it's, are you with me? Right. Are you, you and I actually partnering together right now and we can maybe nail the stuff out within eight minutes and we both feel really good and we've got stuff accomplished. So it's, it is, it is, as you said, it's a real, it's a real shift in the paradigm. But, you know, one of our um, docs said that, you know, we've been crazy in healthcare because we've been trying to build and run this, these organizations. Um, it's kind of like we have the opportunity to build a car with the driver inside of it. Right. Right. And so we don't have to guess what's important to us. We don't have to guess these things if we actually bring on our advisors and say, you know, at, at Michigan here, we have 250 adult advisors who sit on committees and sit on leadership and governance and are part of a lot of our quality improvement projects. 
And what they do is they don't, it's not necessarily their story that they share, but it's their, their, the experience that they gain from that story that help us see the blind spots. Well, and it's wonderful that the University of Michigan is actually trying to get people's feedback and actually doing something with it because we've all been on committees where we bring up information and things we'd like to be changed. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. They put a report, nothing happens. Exactly. I mean, you know, like, okay, that was good to know. I mean, how long have we known that personally telemedicine is a great thing for some people who don't need to see the doctor but have questions and they don't need to drive an hour and then go wait for 30 minutes and then have a couple of questions that perhaps could have been answered over Skype or the phone that's just for me you know because of the fact that it's time consuming when you have a chronic illness you have a lot of doctors to see but you also are trying to work full time and have a life <laughs> and so and so some people choose, and I'm sure you've heard this, is that all the appointments and all the time barriers become so much that people decide not to work because they, they want to put their health first, which they should, but um, the, it becomes too much for them. And, yeah, I, I and agree. It, and it I impacts think, them. Yeah, you know, I think there's so many ways that you can try to um, increase incentives that would allow people to work. I mean, I've always said, you know, this is kind of off track a little bit, but I've always been bummed out that, you know, those of us who are on dialysis and have insane renal disease, um, you know, are, are lucky enough to have the option of, being, of having Medicare, right? Right. And so you can have Medicare, and then, um, you know, I've worked the whole time, so my, I also have insurance through my employer, and that's always been my secondary. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if the secondary insurer for those of us who work could be primary and Medicare secondary? Because then that would, that would actually incentivize the units and CMS to get people to work, right? right? So they would actually, as you're saying, they would make things more convenient. They may allow, you know, telemedicine to be happening. They may allow clinics to be open in much different times and have us schedule them all different ways. Um, but right now, there's really no incentive to do that. Right. To keep people working and keep their private insurance. No, it's it's been a debate in the community, and I'm sure it will be, but um, I agree with you on that. You know, Celeste, can you walk us through what perhaps a patient-centered dialysis center would look like? Sure, absolutely. So what a patient-centered dialysis facility would look like is that you would have probably, I would say, 10 to 15 um, patient advisors from that unit. So those are made up of dialysis patients, um, a really good uh, diverse representation of all those who receive dialysis there. This is an advisory group that would meet with the medical director and the nurse manager, a couple of the patient care techs, dietitians, social workers. They would meet once a month, um, usually tied towards some of the goals of the unit, so it could be tied to some of their quality improvement. These advisors would also be talking with patient care techs about some of the needs that they see that maybe the organization doesn't see, right? So they may see that some of the patient care techs are a little rough when it comes to cannulation or they're, they're not very good at it and they need a little bit more training, they may mention that and say, can we have a special quarterly cannulation um, workshop and we would love patients to actually come and talk to you about what some of our concerns are, right? Um, some of the advisory uh, patients there might say, you know, we need a face board or, you know, they might talk about some of the aesthetics of the unit. They might talk about some of the quality improvement. I know one thing they would say, it's too cold in here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even realize it's not only too cold in there, but their, their dialysis temp is probably set at 36 I know, or I know, five. I know. It's like a never, that's, that's a never winning battle no. <laughs> because you're, you're cold from inside, not from outside. Exactly. It's just, it's that, that's a part that's never going to work. But, but what a, the, a patient-centered unit would look
look like is that they would have partnerships and representation from the advice, I mean, from the patients there, and maybe even some family members. They would also have really strong partnerships between the patient care techs and the patients, um, because the patient care techs are the ones who deliver the care, and they're the ones who um, really can make sure your access is stays clean and sterile as the patient can. So it's somewhere where the the culture in that unit is truly about partnership, um, and it's it's truly about having. The, um, the employees, they're happy, and the patients, they're happy in communicating with one another. But more importantly, that the patients' voices are represented at a level um, of the organization within the dialysis unit and well, the management level. Well, one of the discussions, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard of this, but, you know, some facilities don't allow patients to eat. What, what are your thoughts about that? Because I know that when I was on dialysis for you know, four hours, you know, you get hungry. If you're being dialyzed, you get hungry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I understand not bringing a Big Mac in or, you know, but there should be a list of food that you can eat, like a protein bar or, or, or some things that aren't large in nature. Because I think it's, it, it actually, and I was having a discussion with a physician about this, is that, you know, we didn't commit a crime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not doing jail time. So to tell somebody that they need to show up for four hours, they can't eat, they're going to be cold, they might not get a television, they might get a television, you know, basically, um, you know, I would say, do I want to go to dialysis? It impacts adherence. And the more people understand that making an environment that's that's a patient-centered care will improve adherence overall. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it'll improve adherence. It'll allow people to um, really be um, in a better frame of mind. And, yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think that people should be able to bring food or snacks um, because dialysis really does make you hungry. When I get off that machine... I want to eat. That's You're like starving. I just want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> all the toxins have been removed. Yeah. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them have been removed from the blood, and that tells your brain you're hungry. Yeah. And that's how you should feel after dialysis, or at the end, you should be hungry. I mean, that means you're getting dialysis. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, I, that's exactly what you're talking about, Lori, is exactly what a patient advisory council would be talking to in their unit to say, like, let's just say their unit did have, for instance, my unit did um, initiate uh, a policy that you could no longer call in for food. So patients would be on dialysis and they would call Jimmy John's <laughs> and they would deliver <laughs> to a the pizza. dialysis unit. Deliver a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and the challenge is, is that you have patient care techs who have a lot going on and kind of the last thing they need to do is actually negotiate the payment and the, and, you know, because the Jimmy John guy can't come to your chair. So, um, so they said, you know, you need to bring in your own stuff. You can't call in. Um, which I think is reasonable, right. but I think that the the patients, if they had a patient advisory council, you would have ten or fifteen patients who would say, "But we still need to be able to eat." And what if we do this? And they really help the unit, you know, create the policy for eating. Because I remember when I first started dialysis back in 1983, you could you could eat, you could right. you know you could eat and this and that. And then when I I got a transplant in '86, and then came back in '95. And when I came back to dialysis in '95, boy, was that scary! It's all get out. Um, but then they said, you can't eat or drink. I'm like, says who? <laughs> Why not? And they were telling me, because well, you're going to cramp. You're gonna... Who, what are you talking? They're trying to give me these, these biology reasons why you couldn't eat or drink when, in fact, they just didn't want you to. 
Right. I mean, sometimes sometimes there really is a medical reason that people have difficulty in eating and drinking. I mean, you can tell by, you know, the crit line when people have the crit line on and there's blood volume monitoring running. You can tell immediately when their volume drops when they eat. Yeah. But it's it, it's not for everybody. And it's, again, trying to, you know, which is in patient-centered care, is cookie-cutting the patient, like just making everybody the same, which doesn't I mean, right. I don't think those coexist, cookie-cutter care and patient-centered care. They can't live together, can no, they? No, no, they can't. It's really about providing the right care at the right time to the right person. And so that's what it's all about. If, if a patient is on dialysis, a family member, you know, at a transplant clinic, how do they even find out or get involved in patient-centered care? Sure. What it's really about is it's, it's kind of like you want to, like we've all said, we want to be owners of our own health care, right? So that means we're going to be active participants, right? right? And um, not passive receivers. And, you know, another way that, that we try to tell, like, doctors and patients is that you can tell you're getting patient-centered care. One is it's about respect and dignity, right? So I'm getting treatment where they respect and they're dignifying, they're sharing information with me, and they're asking me to participate. And most importantly, they're not doing stuff to me or for me, but they're doing things with me. So if my doctor or the folks in my dialysis unit, if they're doing things with me, if we're having a real dialogue, um, then, then, then we're being patient-centric, right, because I'm taking active control and partnering. And I think that's something, Laurie, I mean, it's so hard for because that's something that we've, we've done, right? That's, right. I, I, that's why it, we're here for so long. Yes, exactly. That's why, you know, that's what I say. The way, patient-centered care is really about taking control and, and, and control in a way that we're going to work together. And as I said a little bit ago, it's like I'm the expert of me. I know how drugs affect me. I know how dialysis affects me. I know me. Um, and you know in your toolkit what my options are, right? As a physician or a nurse, you've got options. You've got a toolkit. The gold standard may not be the best for me, right, because we need to talk about it. You and me need to talk about it, and we need to see what's in your toolkit. And if there's nothing in your toolkit to help me, don't abandon me. Right? Don't just say, well, I can't use anything, so I'll see you later. Right? It, that's not patient-centered. It's like being a partner with me throughout the entire journey. And I think for patients, you know, one thing is mo- a lot of, like, UCLA is really trying to do this. I wouldn't be surprised if Cedars-Sinai. Um, all over the country, um, all of the top hospitals do have patient advisory councils. And so if somebody wants to get involved, they basically talk to their doctor or their nurse or their facility administrator and ask them, what, what should they ask? Yeah, this is what I would ask. I would ask, um, you could talk to your doctor, which would be great, but I think it'd be even easier to go online um, in your hospital um, website and put in patient family-centered care or put in patient advisory council. Uh, and you can, you know, and then that, that should come up. And they would tell you, it usually it can be run through, it can be run through a couple different offices in a hospital. So one is you can actually look and you could actually contact your volunteer office. Well, and then also the local networks, there's 18 networks throughout the country. They all have patient advisory councils. Yep, they do. They have patient advisory councils. If you want to get involved at the network level, um, even as, you know, as we've been talking, Lori, about even nationally, a lot of these um, advisory councils are really shifting the dynamic. So, like, if you're on the National Quality Forum, it used to be you, one patient, and, like, 15 experts around the country. Right. Right? And it was a checkbox. 
Right. It, it, it wasn't meaningful. I've been a checkbox many occasions. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, I've been checkboxing throughout my <laughs> I, whole life my being, whole, being my, involved. You I know? have one of those sweaters that, you know, look like your grandmother used to wear with all the checkboxes on it. Whatever. Yeah. It's, just, it's, not, it's not real. And what, what we're really trying to do is make meaningful participation, right? It's just kind of like the new Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute that's doing patient-centered outcomes research, but is really trying to engage patients in a meaningful way, just like you and I are going to be involved in, hopefully in a project that is real, right? I mean, our, our contribution is not going to be, okay, we heard them, now let's just move on. Well, one of the things that's interesting, though, that it is a deterrent is that a lot of these council meetings are like during the work week. Yeah. And a lot of people who are working can't participate because, you know, our first job of somebody who has an illness, I need to work and contribute if I can. That's the thing I need to do. And, you know, oftentimes the times that they pick these meetings and, you know, it's two o'clock in the afternoon and, you know, we all run into challenges of when to have, when is a good time to have a meeting? <laughs> exactly. It is. And that's why I'm in a, a, a lot of um, certain meetings, like if people are going to be on like patient safety committees or, or committees of the hospital, they, they are going to happen during the day. Um, some of the advisory councils that happen are doing conference calls nationally so that you get on a call. Uh, but most of the uh, most of our advisory councils, and I think this is the same for the majority um, around around the country, is they do have them in the evening, right? Usually yeah. around like five thirty to seven or something like that. So they um, the most of the advisory councils are in the evening because of that, because people know that they work, and um, it just and it also is a much more relaxed environment if people don't have to go back to work after after right. being or, a part of the or having. I know, I know some meetings where they want people to participate, but they don't provide any resources for them. Like everything's volunteer. They don't pay for parking. They don't pay for mileage. And that's an, you know, some people want to participate, but they can't afford to. Yeah. Well, here's the good thing is that uh, most of the ad- advisory councils um, are being an advisor now, um, especially within healthcare, is that your, your parking will be covered, right? So if you come, your parking's covered. Um, you know, some, some also offer gas cards to help you get there. Some are also looking into uh, Skype, right, so that if, if you can't make it, if you live a long distance, but you still want to have your voice heard and want to be a part of an advisory council, they can actually set up a laptop in a seat with your face on Skype, <laughs> and you participate that way. So there's um, most health systems around. There's a wonderful, I also like to tell people, there's a wonderful organization that can tell you all about patient family-centered care, and that's called the Institute for Patient and Family-Centered Care, and it's ipfcc.org. Can you repeat that that again? Sure, it's ipfcc.org. And that is the Institute for Patient Family Centered Care. And they would get a lot of information. There's resources. It's really a wonderful place to start um, when you're interested in this. And I would highly suggest all of us, all of um, this entire kidney community, because we're usually silent. We try to have... Um, uh, as large a voice as we can have, but I think it's really crucial that all of us who have been um, affected by kidney disease uh, really reach out to our local physicians and our dialysis clinics and our hospitals and say, I'm really interested in being a patient advisor. I'd really like to talk about patient-centered care. And um, chances are there's somebody in that organization who wants to do that too or who's already doing it. Well, that's great information, Celeste. I think, you know, both of us know that you have to be engaged and informed. And uh, I, I wrote an article a few years ago called Patient Engagement 
reality or annoyance. <laughs> and um, it really is. It's like, you know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, yeah, we want to do that. But it can be annoying because people need to change. They need to change their thought process. Healthcare professionals and administrators, you know, of hospitals, they need to change their thinking process. And and that can be annoying. Oh, it <laughs> is. It absolutely can be. It's, and that's where, that's where you've, you've got to do, everybody's got to do a lot of changing and you know, um, we as advisors, um, they, we have to realize and understand what our expectations are of us and that you also can't be a patient who co-ops the conversation and um, kind of manipulates the conversation that's all about you. It's got to be your experience, but really focused on what the task is at hand. And the same with physicians. It's like they don't necessarily know how to use advisors this way. And so we have to help them learn how to do that. And it's really about mutual trust and respect. Um, about each one brings something unique to the table and special to the table. And, you know, our experience is a really hard-earned, learned experience. And, uh, but doesn't it give us meaning, right, to say, God, if we, if we have this experience, maybe we can help make a difference right. and improve um, what's happening and, and, and the, changing the traditional role between physician and patient. I know. I admire your passion and enthusiasm for this topic because it's so needed. And I hope that the patients, the family members, and the healthcare professionals that listen really check out the website, figure out ways that you can help, you know, engage the patients to be able to provide the care that works for them and that they can adhere to. Uh, It's so important because um, basically that improves your quality. When patients adhere and buy on, everybody, all boats rise. (laughs) Absolutely. All boats rise. And and, and I I, I think quite honestly, Lori, we and and plus others that, that, that we know in the kidney community who are engaged have, you know, just not only our quality of life and the meaning of our life, but the longevity. Right. The longevity and... And being able to participate and give back. So, um, well, thank you, Celeste. Um, I appreciate you bringing this topic to light. And um, it's important for everybody listening to figure out how you can get engaged. Um, and in, in any aspect of care, it could be your hospital, it could be your dialysis facility, transplant facility. It could be your, if you have a parent who's in an assisted living. I mean, all of these places need to hear patient and family experience so that they can help improve care and deliver better quality. Absolutely. Well said, Lori. Yay. (laughs) Well, thank you, Celeste. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.